Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. We're going to read from verse 1 to verse 12. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Let's pray. Father, we've gathered in your name. We thank you that you are present with us. Father, you are worthy of our praise. And so we have offered praise to you. And we've laid our petitions before you. Father, we thank you that you hear our prayers through your son, Jesus Christ not on the basis of our merits or how well we have been behaving this week, but just on the basis of your Son, Jesus Christ. We laid our petitions before you, knowing you hear our prayers. And we thank you that you hear our prayers and you answer them. And Father, now as we turn our minds to the holy scriptures that you've inspired, Lord, I pray that we would Approach the scriptures with anticipation that you work through the preaching of your word, that you inspired this for our instruction, our training, and our comfort, and that your word is a double-edged sword that pierces the marrow and the bones, dividing soul and spirit. Father, we just pray that as we reflect upon this passage this morning and as we think about what Jesus has taught here, You would enlighten us and give us understanding. Do a work that we can't do, we pray. And we pray that you would be honored and glorified in all of this. Because this is all of you and through you and to you. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday, we studied verses 1 through 8 of this passage that we just read. And we asked the question, what does it mean to be born again. 
Jesus here says that unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And so we asked, what does it mean to be born again? And we looked at the context of this teaching of Jesus, and we saw that the context of this teaching of Jesus is Jesus' unwillingness to entrust himself to those who come to him believing. It says in chapter, two, in chapter 2, 23, 24, and 25, there's a whole bunch of people who see his signs, who see his miracles, and it says that they believe in him in verse 23, 24, and 25, and yet Jesus does not entrust himself to them because he doesn't, he doesn't believe in their faith because he knows all men He knows what is in man. And this is the context of the teaching, you must be born again. There's something wrong with man. Even man in his best religious endeavors, even man in approaching Jesus, even man in saying, I believe in Jesus, I see Jesus' miracles, I, I put my faith in him, and unless a man is born again, there's something wrong with man, no matter what he does. That's the context. We looked also last week at Jesus' clarification of what it means to be born again. And we saw that Jesus clarifies himself to Nicodemus by saying that being born again means to be born of the Spirit. That's what he's talking about. Being born of the Spirit, which is really this kind of mysterious thing according to verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes and you don't, you don't know, you hear its sound, you don't know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. And I gave my conclusion last week. This is what I believe Jesus is saying. And I'm going to summarize what it means to be born again from last week. Regeneration, which is just another word for being born again. Regeneration is the one-time event. That means it doesn't need to be repeated. You don't need to be born again, again, again. If you've been born again, that's once and for all. Regeneration is the one-time event in which a person becomes a child of God and a new creation through faith in Christ, which faith is brought about by the Spirit of God working in the heart, enabling this person to believe the gospel. That was what I argued last week. So being born again is when you become a new creation through faith, through spirit-wrought faith in Christ. Another way of putting this is this, brothers and sisters, When a person believes in Christ, he is birthed anew as a child of God and as a new creation. The old is gone, the new is come. He's no longer in Adam. He's no longer an old corrupt creation. He is a new creation in Jesus. And his faith in Jesus came about because of the work of the Holy Spirit in his heart, enabling him to receive the gospel. That's what I argued last week. So I point to two aspects here in this new birth or in regeneration. There's the birth itself. There's the event in which you become a child of God. And then there's the source of that birth. There's the reason why you were born. And that is spirit-wrought faith. It's not enough simply to say you must be born again. You must have another birth event. Because imagine we had another birth event, but the source of that birth was the same as the old one. So you're born of the flesh once. Okay, then I'm born again of the flesh twice. So you've had a second birth. You've had a new birth. You've been born again, right? Well, not according to Jesus unless the source of that birth is altogether different. And look at verse 6 with me in chapter 3. 
Here we see the birth event. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. The source of that first birth is flesh, and therefore the result of that birth, the product of that birth, is flesh. So we have what is produced by the birth is flesh, and what brought about that first birth was flesh. In the second birth, in the new birth, we have a new production. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So what is born is spirit, but it's it's spirit because its source is different. It is not of the flesh, but of the Spirit. So there's these two aspects here. Born again and born of the Spirit. And turn with me in your Bibles back to chapter 1. And we'll look again at these two aspects. Chapter 1 of John, verse 10. John writes, The Word was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. There's a note of tragedy there. The ones who really should receive him didn't. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So you see here, there's a universal claim. We talked about universal claims last week. In verse 10, he was in the world, and who didn't recognize him? Who didn't know him? According to verse 10. There's a universal claim. The world didn't know him. So if you're of the world, you don't know Jesus. There's a universal claim. All who are of the world did not recognize him. But yet we see in verse 12 that there are people who recognize him and by receiving him, by believing in his name, they become the children of God. This is what it means to be born again. But then in verse 13, John gives us the source of this birth. These who believed in him were born. And notice how he negates what the source is. They were not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. I think this is pretty important what he's trying to hammer into our heads here. They were born again, not of, basically, if you take all these together, of man, and not of the flesh, not of what humans do, but they were born of God. Obviously, the idea of the source of your birth is very important to John. It is God, friends, who brings about the new birth. Amen? Amen. It is God and not man and not the will of the flesh and not the will of man, according to John, that brings about the new birth. Whenever someone is born again, whenever the born again event happens, whenever somebody believes in Jesus and becomes a child of God in new creation, who gets the glory for that? Who do we say the glory belongs to? Who did that? God. God is the one who brings about the new birth. But the question is, of course, how can we be born by faith? How can we become a child of God by faith and yet it not be of man? That's a question, isn't it? How can we say that in order to become a child of God, in order to become a new creation, you need to believe in Jesus and yet somehow that's not of man, not of the will of man, not even of the flesh. How can we put those two things together? I need to believe, you need to believe, and it is not of man. And I believe the answer to that question is to recognize 
that this faith that we have as Christians is of God. It is spirit-wrought faith. It is not the work of man or the product of man. Yes, we believe. Yes, we even choose to put our faith in Jesus Christ. But we recognize that that is the work of God. There's something there that isn't from man or from the world because the world, it says, doesn't recognize him and rejects him. The theologian Reginald Kelly comments, although the salvation of God is wrought in man and manifest through man, it is nothing of man. I mean, do we believe this? Or do we think that there's still some area cornered off in all of this that is of man? Now, there's always been and there always will be a mystery to this and a tension between these two aspects. I believe, but yet it's of God. How does that work? Faith is something that I do. It's true. But yet God is the one who gets the glory for working in my heart by his Holy Spirit and bringing about this ability to believe so that I can truly say my faith in Christ is of God and not of man. But there's a mystery and there's there's a tension here. In history, we see this tension. If we so emphasize God's work to the exclusion of man believing. So if you take my words and you say, Eli said that God is the one who has to work faith in us and we don't really believe at all and so we're just totally passive and we do nothing. We don't believe. It's just all God. We've come into error at that point. And as we've seen in history, there's always backlash. If you so emphasize the work of God in bringing us to faith that you totally neglect even telling people to believe, You've entered error. You're not being biblical anymore. And there's, there's historically been backlash. Christians will rise up and say, that's not right. The Bible says we need to believe, right? But the, the opposite is also true. If you so emphasize the other way that we need to believe and it's what we do and it's just a work of man and God has nothing to do with it, right? If you so emphasize that and you say, it's just human beings who bring this about, not God. In fact, there are theologians who would say that, that explicitly. God can't do it for you. God doesn't do anything for you in this area. This is just you. Then you're in error. You've departed from the Bible, and there's going to be backlash, as we've seen throughout history. Christians will rise up and say, hold on a second. The Bible says that what is in us is of God, and God is the one who has to do it because the world does not recognize him. That which is of man does not and cannot and is excluded from bringing about the new birth. So I recognize this is a mysterious thing. And it seems the most biblical and the best approach to all this is that we do what the Bible says and that we urge faith in people. And we say, you need to believe in Jesus in order to be saved. You need to become a new creation through faith in Christ. You need to choose this and do this. But when it happens, we give glory to God. That's what I see as the biblical approach to this. And we'll talk more about this this morning. This morning, we're going to continue reflecting on Jesus' lengthy discourse here on being born again. As I said last week, we looked at what does it mean to be born again. And this week, we're going to look at three things. Why must we be born again? 
Why must we be born again? That's the first question we're going to look at. Secondly, how does the Spirit work in our hearts to bring about this faith? So why do we need to be born again, and how does the Spirit work in our hearts? We're going to look at how that happens best, as best we can. And then thirdly, I'll conclude with what the results are of being born again. So when you are born again, what results from this? Before we begin addressing these questions, I'd like to just set the stage, and if you'd look with me at verse 9 of chapter 3. Nicodemus hears Jesus' teaching that we must be born again. Jesus has told him, unless a person is born again, they cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, and he clarifies that by saying, unless a person is born of the Spirit... They cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And that this is like the wind, that you, you know it's sound, but you can't predict it. And what is Nicodemus's response to this teaching of Jesus's? What is his response? In verse 9, how can these things be? He's bewildered. He hears what Jesus is saying, and it doesn't make sense to him. Now, his response is very similar to people's responses throughout the ages and today to this teaching, you must be born again. He's bewildered. He's heard what it is, but he doesn't understand why. He doesn't understand how. He doesn't understand the results. He doesn't understand the purpose. It doesn't make sense to him. And the interesting thing here is that Jesus rebukes Nicodemus in verse 10 for not understanding. He says, you're a teacher in Israel, and you don't understand this issue of being born again? You should understand this, Nicodemus. You've got the Old Testament scriptures. And apparently, according to Jesus, somebody armed with simply the Old Testament scriptures should be able to grasp and understand the need for regeneration and being born again. And Nicodemus didn't. And I don't believe that we're supposed to just find some verse in the Old Testament. I don't believe we're supposed to just proof text it and say, yeah, here's this one verse that says we need to be born again. Here's another verse that says something about regeneration. But brothers and sisters, I believe it's the whole tenor of the Old Testament. The entire message, all the data of the Old Testament points clearly and simply in the direction that mankind, humanity, must be born again if they're going to enter into the kingdom of God. Have you noticed that? I mean, would you agree with me that That's true. Just the whole tenor and plain message of the Old Testament points to the need for human beings to be born again. Everything it says about humanity and salvation as well. And it's interesting, look at verse 12. Jesus seems to think that being born again is an elementary doctrine. This isn't even something that that is that uh, advanced. Jesus says in verse 12, If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Now, some, a few people think in the commentators, uh, of the commentators that I read or have suggested that perhaps the earthly things that he's talking about is like the, how the wind works. But I don't think that's the correct interpretation of this. Nicodemus didn't disagree with Jesus about how the wind operates. Most scholars interpret verse 12 as saying, the earthly things that I'm telling you about is being born again. Because it pertains to this earth, 
It pertains to humanity. It pertains to ourselves. I'm not telling you about the advanced, deep, heavenly things up there. I'm telling you about right here on this earth. Unless a man is born again, he can't enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is an elementary doctrine, regeneration. What then are the heavenly things? If this is an elementary doctrine and an earthly thing, what then are the heavenly things? And I'm not going to even try to give an answer to that this morning. I think of the Apostle Paul who said that he knew a man who went to the third heavens and he saw things and heard things that are not lawful to be uttered. You remember this? So simply put, brothers and sisters, there are things, there are heavenly things that we don't know about, that are beyond us. Christianity is a religion of mystery. That means there's a lot of things we don't know. There's a lot of things that we've never heard. The Bible doesn't say absolutely everything there is to know about God and heaven. There's a lot of unknowns still. Until the day we go to heaven, until the day that we are we become like him and we know even as we're known. There'll be unknowns, there'll be mysteries, there'll be paradoxes. There are heavenly things that are not lawful to be uttered. But Christianity also is a religion of revelation and there are things that we can know and there are things that we do know and it's those things that we need to concern ourselves with. Okay, So Christianity is not just this religion of mystery. Oh, there's so many unknowns that we don't know what to do or say. That's not true. There are the mysteries, but there's plain things too that it is, it is incumbent upon us to understand and to know and to act upon and to believe. And one of those things, apparently, is you must be born again. So with that, let's begin to reflect upon how these things can be, as Nicodemus asked in verse 9. First of all, why we must be born again. I'd like you to take a brief excursion with me through the Bible, and I trust you'll see, if you haven't already seen, by this brief tour through the Bible, that humanity in and of itself is hopelessly messed up. Have you noticed that? What what does the Bible say about humanity in and of itself? And I trust you'll see this morning that humanity is hopelessly messed up and unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So consider with me first where we can first see what humanity is like. Humanity in the Garden of Eden. So here we've got Adam and Eve, our parents, our original parents. They're the first parents. They're the beginning. And they're in a totally ideal environment, aren't they? Maslow would be proud, right? Abraham Maslow, the hierarchy of needs, he'd be proud. Okay, so their physiological needs are all taken care of, right? They got plenty of food, They're not in any danger. They're safe. Their emotional needs are taken care of. They've got relationship with God. They've got relationship with one another. They've got esteem 
They're, they're valuable. They're made in God's image. So they've got a sense of importance. And I'm a, I'm a very important part of God's creation. Maslow would be proud. They're in an ideal environment. What about self-actualization? That's the top one on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Were Adam and Eve able to fulfill their full potential as human beings in the Garden of Eden? Were they able, able to fulfill their potential? Well, what was their potential? What was their calling? What was their purpose? To honor God, of course, something they, they could have done. And to, as God gave them the task, to have dominion over the earth. But what happened? How did humanity do in a perfectly ideal situation? All their needs are met. They're safe. They're emotional. They're, they've got a, all of those needs are met. And they've got a task before them that's absolutely beautiful and God-honoring and promoting of their own well-being. I mean, you'd think if that theory was right, that if a person's environment were simply right, then that person would be right, right? And what happens is Adam and Eve don't want to fulfill their potential as humans. Adam and Eve want to fulfill potential as gods, don't they? So they want to break the boundaries. They want to overstep their habitation. And they say, you know, we're not content to be the creatures that God created us to be. We would like to be gods. And Satan comes along in the Garden of Eden and he whispers lies about God into their ears. And the sad thing and the revealing thing about humanity, and maybe you can resonate with this in your own personal life, but lies instead of truth find a matching receptacle in their hearts, right? So when the devil speaks lies, it seems like it resonates with them. That makes sense to me. Oh yeah, that's something I like to hear. That's good. Yes, it's desirable to make me wise like God. Instead of, hey, no way, Satan. God is the one who's good. God is the one who's wise. God didn't give us that tree to eat. He knows best. And we should honor him and give him glory because he's our creator who's given us all these good things. Now, that wasn't Adam and Eve's response. Lies found the receptacle in their heart and humanity shows itself to be ungrateful, dishonest, disloyal, traitorous, idolatrous, narcissistic, and self-exonerating. That is, they make excuses when God comes to them and says, what have you done? It's his fault. It's her fault. It's that serpent's fault. Does that sound familiar in your own experience? Ungrateful, dishonest, disloyal, traitorous, idolatrous, narcissistic, and self-exonerating. That's our beginnings and our constant experience. Okay, let's look at humanity after the garden. How does humanity fare after? Did they learn their lesson? Oh, we were really sinful and wrong in the Garden of Eden. What do we see after the garden? What do we see? And it's amazing because after Adam and Eve sinned, God actually deals with them in mercy, doesn't he? He doesn't immediately annihilate them. In fact, he... he, he uh, continues to preserve mankind and furthermore gives them a promise of deliverance, doesn't he? Promises that a savior will come. So God deals with them in mercy in the light of this horrible rebellion against him. And you think maybe humanity might say, wow, at this point, we've really been in the wrong. God's really beautiful. Let's, 
Let's honor God and follow his word. And turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. And we see how humanity looks after the Garden of Eden. Genesis 6, verse 5. Many generations have passed. God now looks upon the earth. And in Genesis 6, verse 5, we have this description of mankind. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There's a lot of important words in that verse, isn't there? (laughs) Look at verse 11 with me. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way, Upon the earth. So we're looking at what does the Bible, what is the message of the Bible regarding humanity here? And now we're looking at them after the Garden of Eden and look at the descriptions. What kind of wickedness, according to verse 5? Great wickedness. So he doesn't just say they're wicked, he says they're greatly wicked. How many intents of their heart were evil? Every intent. That's a a universal word. That's an exhaustive word. How often were their thoughts evil? Continually. Every intent of their thoughts of their heart were only evil continually. And I look at verse 11. How filled was the earth with violence? Well, it's, it, you know, it wasn't just in one corner, was it? It says the earth here was filled with violence, completely filled. And in verse 12, how much flesh had corrupted its way on the earth? All. So we've got the word great, every, continually filled, and the word all. These are strong words, and they're meant to communicate something to us. When God looks upon humanity, he sees we are corrupt. Completely corrupt. And so bad, if we want to know, well, okay, it says we're greatly wicked and so violent and all the thoughts of our hearts are continually evil. How bad is that really to God? And we see that God does something about it, something that he's actually never done since. And that is, of course, he floods the earth. He destroys everybody. He kills everybody. That's pretty extreme, isn't it? We haven't seen anything like that since. And the only reason, brothers and sisters, we haven't seen anything like that since is because God promised he wouldn't do that again. It's not because humanity doesn't deserve a flood. Or do you think that they don't? Do you think that since that time we've changed so much that we don't deserve a flood? That our, do you think that the 21st century generation is better than uh, Noah's generation? Do you think we've changed, evolved spiritual evolution here? And God says, you know that rainbow, I don't even need to look at it anymore, right? I don't even need to look at it anymore because I don't, I don't even think about flooding them anymore, right? 
No, the rainbow's still there because God still looks at it and remembers his covenant promise. I won't flood the earth again. I promised I'm not going to do that. But it's not because of us. And I, I, I would guess that in Noah's day, people probably wouldn't have described themselves as greatly wicked, only evil, continuously you know, filled their world with violence and all flesh had corrupted themselves. If you had said that to them, they would have said, no way, we're not that bad, right? There's always somebody worse. So by this significant punishment of the flood, the Bible communicates to us how great is the sin of man and the crime of mankind. We should take a lesson from the flood and say, wow, all flesh is corrupt and what we deserve is death. We move to our next major window through which we look at humanity. And that is when humanity is brought into covenant with God. And of course, I'm referring here to the nation of Israel that God chose out of all the nations of the earth, not because they were better than any other nation, but he chose them for his own purposes. He brought them to himself in a marvelous display of power and grace. And he taught them and instructed them with his holy and good law. So God cuts a little portion of this corrupt humanity and says, come, come to me and I will instruct you and I will teach you and I will be your God. I will protect you. If you follow my commandments, I will bless you. And you know, I'm even, I'm even bringing this to you, not because you deserve it, but just because I'm good. I will bless you and take care of you, and keep all illnesses and sicknesses away from you, and attacking enemies. He brings them to himself. He dramatically shows them his goodness, his power, and his care, unlike anything humanity had ever seen. And how did humanity respond in that situation? So we might say, okay, maybe humans are getting better. Or maybe, okay, maybe in the Garden of Eden, the ideal situations, you know, they could sin. Maybe out of the garden on their own, they're going to get corrupt. But perhaps in God's care, with God's instruction, things will be better. How do they fare? Now, have, have you ever thought that about in individuals and maybe about yourself? That maybe you yourself, okay, perhaps you had a sinful past and you noticed it. And you said, ah, I really lived like a bad person. I'm going to get religious. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to... Come to God, I'm going to learn his rules, I'm going to do the things that he wants me to do, and my life will be not corrupt anymore through this covenant relationship with God that I'll enter into, and I'll follow his rules and his commandments. I will improve myself and be different than the rest of the world. Maybe you've thought that that is the way to improve humanity. Turn with me to Psalm 106. Psalm 106 gives us a summary of what happened. Psalm 105 and Psalm 106 go together. Psalm 105 actually recounts all the goodness and the power and the care that God has shown to Israel. And Psalm 106 shows Israel's response to this. Psalm 106 verse 13. Here's what the psalmist says in summary of how this project went for humanity. Verse 13, they quickly forgot his works 
If you know the book of Exodus, immediately after they went through the Red Sea, they started to, they started to uh, forget God and complain. They quickly forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but craved intensely in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. So he gave them their request, but sent a wasting disease among them. When they became envious of Moses in the camp and of Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and engulfed the company of Abiram. And a fire blazed up in their company. The flame consumed the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a molten image. Thus they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their Savior who had done great things in Egypt. Wonders in the land of Ham and awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said that he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe in his word, but grumbled in their tents. They did not listen to his voice. Therefore, he swore to them that he would cast them down in the wilderness and that he would cast their seed among the nations and scatter them in the lands. They joined themselves also to Baal Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their deeds and the plague broke out among them. Then Phinehas stood up and interposed. So the plague was stayed and it was reckoned to him for righteousness to all generations forever. They also provoked him to wrath at the waters of Meribah so that it went hard with Moses on their account because they were rebellious against his spirit. He spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with the blood. Thus they became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he abhorred his inheritance. Then he gave them into the hand of the nations and those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them and they were subdued under their power. Many times he would deliver them. They, however, were rebellious in their counsel and so sank down in their iniquity. What a positive, optimistic picture of humanity. Would you have been any different if you were there? Would I have been any different if I were there? They sink down, verse 43 says, in their iniquity. It seems like they got worse and worse and worse. Strangely enough, the more God would do them good and take care of them and rescue them, the worse and worse they would get. And eventually God destroyed Jerusalem and sent them into Babylon. Now, let's look at the next stage. What happened after Babylon? Did Israel learn after God sent a severe judgment upon them? Brothers and sisters, Israel thought they learned after Babylon. Israel became very different. And they would say that we've learned. We've changed our ways. We've, we acknowledge our wrong. We acknowledge that when God took us out of Egypt until Babylon, we were adulterous, evil, wrong, bad, killing the prophets. But now we're turning over a new leaf. 
We are going to reform ourselves. We are going to change. We are going to do this thing. You can see in the book of Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, Israel becomes extremely zealous for the law as they turn over a new leaf in their story. Israel sought to purify itself. It no longer tolerated other religions. It no longer tolerated the worship of any other god in their land. And so strict were they to follow the law of God after Babylon that even when Antiochus Epiphanes came and said, okay, no more Judaism, it's time for you to become assimilated with the rest of the world and grow up here, Israel. They gave their lives to death for their zeal for God. They're saying, we're not going back to worshiping idols anymore. It's from here on out faithfulness to God. When the Romans took over Israel, they, act, they ultimately had to respect that about the Jews. The Roman policy was to assimilate all religions together to make everybody get along. And they looked at Israel and they said, it's just not going to happen. These guys are fanatics about this one God. Fanatics about their God, Yahweh, and fanatics about the law. There's just no way they're going to assimilate. They are the exception to the rule. Israel changed. And in their mind, they learned. I have changed. I think so many individual people are like that. I have changed. I used to live like this. I don't live like that anymore. I used to do these horrible things. I don't do those horrible things anymore. I change. I'm not corrupt anymore. I'm not like the rest of the world anymore. I'm different. And I'm now in relationship with God doing the things I'm supposed to be doing. Yet, what do we see in the Bible? This so-called purified Israel was the same Israel that crucified the Son of God. And this so-called purified Israel is the same Israel that John the Baptist and Jesus reserved their strongest rebukes for. It was the deeply purified, religious, zealous for God Jews that John the Baptist and Jesus said, you brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak good things? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. And this might be one of the strongest words of Jesus. These might be the strongest words of Jesus he gives. Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, but these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Strong words from Jesus. And we will totally miss the significance of this if we think that in Jesus' day, everybody thought those guys were like that, right? Tell it to them, Jesus. They've had this coming to them for a long time. Finally, someone's brave enough to stand up to these guys. Nobody thought like that. We'll miss the significance of this unless we realize that these guys were the best of the best. And in Jesus' day, they were looked up to, they were looked at as spiritual guides, religious guides, upright men, worthy of emulation. And Jesus reserves this kind of rebuke for them. Clearly, Israel did not get better, but worse. One more window into humanity. The Bible predicts the end of the world And it gives us a look at what things will be like at the end of the world. And of course, we've already seen the beginnings. We've already seen the guts in the middle. What do you think the end of the world is going to be like? When we look at the book of Revelation, does it seem like humanity has improved? Does it seem like we've turned the leaf and God finally says, ah, I can get rid of the rainbow now. You know, there's humanity is different. They've changed. What we do see in the book of Revelation is that before Jesus returns, humanity will worship the Antichrist, that which is totally the opposite of God, and they'll raise their fist at God, even in the light of his calls to turn. We see in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, when Jesus returns, the nations of the earth are gathered against him for war. And would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 20? Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. And we have a really interesting story here. And the only reason I can imagine it would be here, and God knows, but here's my guess, that After Jesus returns, after Jesus returns, the Bible tells us here he reigns for 1,000 years and Satan is bound. Satan is bound and no longer deceiving the nations. And then this strange thing happens. After 1,000 years, Satan is released again. And I can only think Satan is released again to prove again, one final time, after all of what has happened, after all of God's saving history, and after all of the beautiful reign of Jesus Christ on the earth, humanity is put to the test once again and is shown to be corrupt. And look at verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. He will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. Against who? And why? The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. He gathers a whole lot. 
They succumbed to his deceiving lies, just like in the Garden of Eden. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Even then, the lies of the devil find a receptacle in the human heart. Brothers and sisters, I think the message here, what we've got from the Bible, humanity has two problems. One, humanity is hopelessly sinful, corrupt, idolatrous, dishonest, traitorous, narcissistic, and self-exonerating. We are not righteous. And when God puts us to the test, we are found to be guilty. Isn't that what the Bible tells us? that the law was given to show us our sin. And whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. When God puts us to the test, we fail. We are not faithful. We do not fear God. We're evil and wicked. What's the second problem? Well, the second problem is this. Humanity absolutely hates to be told that. (laughs) Humanity hates that verdict against itself. The Bible calls this the light. That's what the Gospel of John calls it. The light, the truth. The truth about humanity and the truth about God. Humanity absolutely hates it. So we are corrupt and we hate to be told that we're corrupt. And that's what Jesus says in verse 11 of Chapter 3 to Nicodemus. We testify of what we know. Who's we? God, me, John the Baptist, the prophets before me, Moses. We testify that you're corrupt and you don't receive our testimony. We testify to you, you must be born again. What you are naturally by the flesh is not, is not good, is not acceptable. It can't enter the kingdom of God. You need divine intervention and you don't listen. Regeneration or being born again addresses both of these things, these problems of humanity. Number one, the Spirit of God works in our hearts so that we have a receptacle for the truth. And secondly, it gives us that Spirit-wrought faith in Christ so that we become new creations in Christ and so that we receive the, the provided righteousness from Jesus Christ that we don't work for and achieve ourselves. That's what we need. We're totally corrupt. We need the righteousness that comes through the death of Christ for us. But we can only get that when we accept the truth about ourselves. And we won't do that apart from the Spirit. I want you to imagine for a moment that there was no cross, no death of Christ, no salvation by grace through faith alone in Jesus. There was only law and it only condemned us and showed us we're guilty. So we can't sing victory in Jesus. We can't sing about there's a fountain filled with blood so that a guilty sinner who believes is made clean because there is no cross. But suppose the Spirit of God works in a person's heart and shows them they're corrupt. There's no cross, but the Spirit shows them that they're corrupt. Okay, now now I agree with God. I am totally unrighteous and traitorous and idolatrous and wrong and I deserve to go to hell. Is that person born again? They've come to the, the admission that they're guilty. Would, would Jesus say they're born again? No. 
They're not a new creation and a child of God. They can't be. There's no cross. But imagine there is the cross in salvation, as there truly is. Jesus did die for the sins of the world, and it is his sacrifice that takes away our sins and provides righteousness for us. But no one believes it because there's no work of the Spirit that removes that rebellious hostility towards the truth. Is anyone born again? Unless we believe, we won't become new creations. So regeneration must involve both the work of the Spirit and the work of the cross in order to make us new creations. The whole message of the Bible is just that. Humanity needs to be born again. We need righteousness from God that we cannot produce ourselves, and we need new hearts given to us by the Spirit of God. And the Bible not only tells us we're evil, but it promises God will do these things for us. It's the great hope laid out before us in Scripture. How does the Spirit of God work in our hearts? I'd like to answer an objection at this point. Someone might say, hold on a minute, Eli. You just did a survey of the Bible, and yes, you made a good case that humanity is totally corrupt and rebellious against God. But what about Noah? What about Abraham? What about Phineas? We read about him. What about all the saints who have believed in God and become his children? Not all are corrupt. Not all are rejecting the truth. Not all are idolatrous, dishonest. There are some who believe. There are some who are good. And therefore, not all need the work of the Spirit of God in their hearts. Isaiah. Isaiah. So what do we do with these people in the Bible who didn't go with the flow of the world? Well, if we take the biblical data if we think about the biblical data that we've just looked at, we have two options. Here are our options. Most of humanity is corrupt. But there are some good apples. Most of humanity is evil and hates God and doesn't want to listen and only listens to the lies of the devil and doesn't listen to the truth. But there are some good apples. And those good apples are good apples not because of the work of the Spirit. They just chose differently than the rest of the world. Humans can be good, depending on if they just choose different. Sadly, most of humanity chooses evil, but there are some good people who choose better. That's one option. That's what makes Phineas and Abraham and Moses different. What do you think about that? Humanity could be good if they just chose to do it, and some do choose to be good. You don't need the Spirit's work here. The other option is this, and this is the one I believe is biblical. All flesh truly is corrupt, and the only thing that made these men different was the work of the Spirit of God in their hearts, producing that spirit-wrought faith. So yes, humanity is corrupt, but that doesn't mean there aren't those who will believe the truth. Let's just understand why they do, and they do because of what God has done in them. And if you consider these two options, I think the scriptural teaching is clearly the second. When you consider the universal statements in the Bible about humanity and the work and the promise of the Spirit also in the Bible, the promise that God will do this work in our hearts, 
And also, I think if you consider your own personal experience, brothers and sisters, when I think about myself and I think about the world that doesn't believe in Jesus, I mean, do you ever do that? And think about, why do I believe and others don't? Who makes me to differ? That's the question the Apostle Paul asked himself. Who makes me different? What makes me different? And when you think about the rest of the world and you reflect on yourself, do you really think that you're different because you're any less corrupt? Or you're any less idolatrous? Or you're any less dishonest? I know in and of myself, I am like Adam and Eve. In and of myself, I'm like Israel who rebelled. There's so much evidence of that in my life. Even today as a Christian, I'm a, I'm a sinful, idolatrous, self-exonerating person. And yet there's something in me that is different than that. I believe this truth that I'm guilty and I've embraced it. I've hugged that to myself and pulled it close. A truth that the world re- repels from itself. Why have I embraced the cross and the world hasn't? I can either say, well, it's because I just chose to. I guess I chose better than them. I guess there's something about me that's better. Or I can say, glory to God. Yes, I did believe. That's something I did. But I recognize I'm not better than others. It's just the mercy of God that has given it, granted me the ability to believe. And I think this gives us humility in the face of the fact that the world doesn't believe and we do as Christians. Very briefly, here's four ways the Spirit works in our hearts or how the Spirit works in our hearts. I'd like to just say four quick things. Number one, it is a miracle. He works a miracle in our hearts. The work of the Spirit in changing a person from hostile to the truth and the light to embracing the light is a creative work of God. Webster's Dictionary defines a miracle as an extraordinary, anomalous, abnormal event brought about by a superhuman agency. What I'm saying is this work of the Spirit is outside the ability of mankind. In and of ourselves, we reject the truth. Only God can do this, not man. Have you ever tried to do it? Have you ever sat down a non-believer and just begged him till you're blue in the face and argued with him and tried to say all the right things and come on, if I can just get through to that hard exterior, maybe I can convince you to believe. There's just nothing we can do because the very message we're sharing is offensive and foolishness and a stumbling block to the world. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that this work is a miracle. Would you turn with me there? 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 3. Paul writes, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That is, Satan so controls them by his deception that they can't see the gospel. Verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's like creation ex nihilo, Paul's saying. 
Let there be light, and there was. There was nothing but darkness, no possibility for light, until God spoke, let there be light. And Paul's saying, that's what it's like when you became a Christian. That's what it's like when the scales fell off your eyes. That's what it's like when you first realized what the gospel of Jesus Christ was all about. Let there be light, and there was. It's a miracle. The second thing to say about the work of the Spirit in our hearts is that it's a mystery. Jesus says this in chapter 3 of John, verse 8, the wind blows where it wills. You don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who's who is born of the Spirit. It's not something we fully can understand or predict. I cannot tell you, tomorrow at noon, Roger will become a Christian. I can't do that. It's mystery. Why does God do what he does? How does it work? We just know that he does it. And it's something that's beyond our understanding. We can't write a scientific formula about it. And it that means it will always fill us with wonder when it happens. Could you imagine if we could just map this thing out scientifically and said, don't expect anyone to be born again today because the conditions just aren't right. You know? Expect lots of born again events today. You know? uh, a lot of people are going to believe at this evangelistic service because <laughs> the conditions are all right. Thirdly, and yet we can say that the work of the Spirit of God occurs or concurs with the preaching of the Word of God or with the message of the Gospel. That is, God does this work in our hearts when a person hears the Gospel of Christ. That doesn't mean every time they hear the Gospel that it will happen, but it happens when they hear the Gospel, when they hear the truth. And turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. I'd like to share three passages from 1 Corinthians. Verse 21 of chapter 1, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Here Paul says that it pleased God through the preaching of this foolish message to save those who believe. And so often it happens and Reflect on your own life. Was it not at some point in your life that you heard the message of God, you heard the truth of God, and maybe you had heard it a million times before, but on that one day you heard it and it suddenly got through your thick head and your thick heart and you understood it finally and you believed. Chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, verse 12. Paul writes, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. So if you don't receive the Spirit, then you can't know those things that are freely given to you by God, which things we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. 
But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. So Paul says here, we as the preachers of the gospel speak spiritual things. The gospel is a spiritual message. The world doesn't understand it. It's the truth of God, but they can't understand it. But yet those who receive the Spirit of God, when they hear this message, they understand it and they believe. It's a powerful thing. One more verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. We see this very same thing again. What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. So you did believe in the message through us preaching. Even as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. This is not a popular message, is it? Even in the Christian church, this isn't popular. But what is being said here is humanity is so messed up that they will not even acknowledge their idolatry and their unrighteousness and their evident guilt unless God is the one who by his spirit enables them to see and believe. Fourthly, how the spirit works in our heart. And this is very important. When the spirit of God works in our hearts, enabling us to believe, this changes who your father is. This changes who your father is. And turn with me to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 8. Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 41. Jesus says these words to the Jews. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. So now they're professing that they were born of God. So this ties right in with being born again. Oh, we are born of God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. This is the story of the Garden of Eden, and this is the story of Revelation 20, when Satan deceives the nations. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. 
Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. The work of the Spirit of God in our hearts changes who our Father is. The source of our birth is now different. We are no longer born of flesh. We are no longer born of the devil. We are born of the Spirit of God. And God becomes our Father. And we now have the receptacle of truth. And we hear his truth. 2 Timothy. This will be the last verse we flip to. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 24, 2 Timothy 2.24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. So here's what Paul sees. The lost world is in captivity to the devil, and we go and we preach the gospel to them in the hopes that God will grant unto them the ability to understand and believe the truth and to rescue them out of the snare of the devil. The world, John says in 1 John, the world lies in, The world lies in wickedness and is controlled by the devil, but we are born of God. He says, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in wickedness. But when the Spirit of God works that miracle in your heart, with the Word of God, through the preaching of the Word of God, God becomes your Father. And instead of being captive, brothers and sisters, to the devil's will, you are now able to do the will of God from your heart which is to believe, which is to believe in his son, Jesus Christ. I'd like to make this very clear. If you are not a Christian this morning, if you are not believing in the gospel, if you don't believe that you're a sinner and you deserve to go to hell and you don't believe that all of humanity, including yourself, is corrupt, and you don't believe and haven't put your trust in Jesus Christ, haven't put your trust in what he did for you, and for all humanity on the cross by taking on us, taking on himself our sins, paying the just penalty that we deserve, bearing the wrath of God, satisfying God's law on our behalf and providing salvation and forgiveness and righteousness. If you don't trust in him, then I say this to you this morning, you are of your father the devil. You are of the devil and not of God if you are not believing in Jesus Christ. And the surest sign that you're of your father, the devil, is that you are either apathetic or hostile to the message of the gospel. That's the surest sign. If you, are, if you don't care about this, you hear the preacher or you see a, you know, something online or you see something on TV or whatever through the radio and you hear this message that you need to believe in Jesus to be saved. You know, we're all going to hell and you've got to believe in him. And that's just, you're just apathetic to that. That's a sure sign you're captive to the devil. Or you're hostile to that, I hate that message, and I think it's wrong, and no, it can't be that way, and Jesus can't be the only way, or whatever. That's a sure sign you're of your father, 
the devil and you're under his control. You need to be born again. And God needs to do that work of his spirit in your heart. One of, the, one of the signs that that process is taking place is that the apathy starts dropping away. And you start hearing this, oh my goodness, if this is true, I'm in really, really big trouble and I need God's help. I need God's help from A to Z. I need God to do it all for me. That's a good sign. A final objection. Someone might say, Eli, if the Spirit of God must work in our hearts in order to bring about faith, then does that mean that those who don't believe are not guilty for their unbelief? Hey, it has to be God, right? So then if we don't believe, it's not our fault, it's His. And the answer to that is, the source of your unbelief is your own wicked and corrupt, idolatrous, traitorous hearts. No, your unbelief is something you are guilty for. It is solely your fault if you don't believe. It does not take God to make you not believe. It takes him to make you believe. If you go to hell, it's your fault. But if we go to heaven, it's God's fault. And he gets all the glory. If he, it, 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 it's a mystery, as I said. We don't understand why God does or doesn't do all that he, all that he, um, he why he works this way. But if you go to hell in unbelief, that is your fault and it's a judgment upon you for your sins. But if you believe in Christ, let's give God praise for his mercy that he has shown upon us and not take any credit for that in and of ourselves. The message of the Bible is humanity is universally evil. If God doesn't work in our hearts, we're lost. But if God didn't work in our hearts, no one would believe, brothers and sisters. I hope you're hearing that. It's not that the Bible is saying or I'm saying, God's so mean, he doesn't work in everybody's heart. But the message is, no one would believe in him because we're all corrupt and idolatrous and evil. We all deserve to go to hell. He doesn't give us anything we don't deserve if he doesn't. And human sin is so strong that even when God dies for humanity's sins, and his arms are open as they truly are to all people. And he says, come and I will save you. Believe in my son. You will not perish. Why will you die? Come. And we spurn that and we reject that. And we slap him in the face for his mercy. It's all our fault. Because the door is open to us. And yet, if we walk through that door, we give glory to God for giving it to us. This is what I see when I read the Bible. I know that not all Christians see it this way. And you don't have to see it this way to be a Christian. But this is what I, I see in the Bible. I have a hard time escaping this message. But what it, one thing this message does is it humbles man. And it says, you really are evil. And any good that happens is because of God. According to Jesus, the results of being born again is you enter the kingdom of God. God becomes your father. You're now his child. And it never needs to be repeated because you shall overcome the world because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And you can never perish because no one can pluck you out of the father's hand. You are, if you are born again, to put it bluntly, invincible. 
because that holy thing in you is from God and it can't be spoiled by even yourself. And I know if it really just depended on me, I would be spoiled. I wouldn't make it. So this first teaching of Jesus, you must be born again, is one that is truly sublime, humbles humanity, and glorifies God. I say, let God be true and every man a liar. God alone speaks the truth. Everyone else speaks lies. And if we receive the truth, it's only because God has rescued us by his grace and mercy from the snare of the devil. May our merciful God continue to open the hearts of those who spurn him. And even today, if there's anyone here who is apathetic or hostile towards the gospel, may this day be the day that they hear the good news and God breathes into your ear and helps you to understand you're going to hell. You're in a really bad place, and you can't do anything to fix yourself. None of your works, none of your obedience at the law, no turning over a new leaf, no entering some promised covenant with God is going to help you. You need Jesus Christ. You need his death on the cross. You need his blood that was shed. That's all you need. May you today put your faith and total trust in him for eternal life, and may God get all the glory today and forever. Please stand with me as we pray. Father, as elementary as this teaching is, and as I think as clear as it is in the Bible. Nicodemus had a hard time with it, and we have a hard time with it. Father, I pray that you would help us to consider these things, to be Bereans, to think about them, to not just accept it because I say it. Lord, I pray that we would go to the Bible, we would go to the Old Testament, we would reflect upon what it says about humanity, about the devil, Help us, Lord. And Father, I pray that you would grant us all a deeper sense of our wickedness apart from you and of your amazing mercy in saving us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Please show us this in a deeper way. Thank you for the good news of the gospel that you love sinners and offer eternal life to everyone who believes. Thank you, Father. We don't appreciate it as we ought. And I just pray that this morning that you'd take this message and speak to us in a fresh way. In Jesus' name, amen.